0: our reading this morning is from isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 8 a vision of god in the temple in the year that king Uzziah died i saw the lord sitting on a throne high and lofty and the hem of his robe filled the temple seraphs were in attendance above him each had six wings With two, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The full earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Vow with me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a life coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me.
1: A few years ago now, Liz and I went to visit the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust at Slimbridge in Gloucestershire. I don't know if you've been there as well. And whilst we were there, we came across a a sculpture that stands in the grounds by um, Kathleen Scott, who had uh, had originally been made as a war memorial for her son's school at the end of the Great War, 14 to 18. And uh, if you've seen this, uh, the sculpture is of a young boy standing on tiptoe with his arm raised, you know, as if volunteering for something in class or uh, to be picked for games or something like that. And the text at the base of the sculpture reads, here am I, send me. And the implication is clear. He is volunteering to go to war. And underneath the text of Here Am I, Send Me, is a list of 38 names, recording those from the Downs School who died in the First World War. And whilst the sculpture brilliantly captures the tragedy of war, evoking the innocence of childhood on the verge of abruptly giving way to the irrevocable tragedy of the trenches. As a piece of biblical exegesis, I think it is somewhat wide of the mark because the quote, of course, as we know, is from the book of Isaiah. We have just heard it. The prophet hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And the prophet responds, here am I, send me. Is that the Lord calling? I don't know. (laughs) Here I am Lord, send me, (laughs) and to take these words of Isaiah's commissioning and calling and to use them in the context of sending young men in their tens of thousands to their horrific deaths in the trenches is, I think, to take them a very long way from their original context. I balk myself at the implication that those who go to fight for their country, do so in response to God's summons and call. Not for king and country, this infers, but for God. I have nothing but respect for those who fight for their country and for what they believe is right. Do not hear me incorrectly here. But I don't think it's God's choice for humans. That's that's my point. I treasure the story of my own grandfather, who died in the Second World War, navigating a Lockheed Hudson that was hit and downed whilst guarding the food supplies that were coming in through the transatlantic convoys. But when texts like, here am I, send me, are used to add divine justification to the sending of men and women to their deaths, or to inflict death on others, I think is, is something of a problem. Scripture has all too often been used to justify the moral or ethical positions of those in power at any given time. Scripture is is used to sweeten the bitter pill that the population are asked to swallow. Or sometimes scripture is used to defend the status quo against those radical voices who might question the necessity of whatever course of action is being proposed in the first place. You see, there is a propaganda machine that functions within society that appropriates biblical passages such as this, and it then forms an essential part of the functioning of the state as it seeks by any means necessary to bring as many people as possible into line with the proposed course of action. It's easier, isn't it, to go and fight for your country if you believe God's telling you to do it, is it? People seem more willing to do it on that basis, maybe. Well, in our passage for this morning from Isaiah, we meet uh, a text that is used in this way, but it's not the only one. Just think of Jesus' own prophetic words about his going to the cross. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. This saying, usually uh, in its King James and more masculine form of greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, also appears on war memorials the length and breadth of the country with the names of those who have perished listed beneath it. And again the implication is clear. The sacrifice of a life given by those who have died fighting for their country is a sacrifice to be compared with nothing less than the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Again, the death, destruction and desolation of warfare are sanitised by the comforting thought that those who have fought and died have done so at the instigation this time of Jesus, in fulfilment of nothing less than his personal command. Sometimes, as Christians, we are too easily manipulated into thinking that our people are God's people and that what our people do is what God wants them to do. And we're not always right in that. Archbishop Tom Wright puts it rather well. He says, the easy identification of our side with God's side has been a major problem ever since Christianity became the official religion of the Roman state in the fourth century. Ironically, as Western Europe has become less and less Christian in terms of its practice, its leaders seem to have made this identification more and more. So that both sides in the major world wars of the 20th century century, were staffed by Christian chaplains praying for their side's victory. I mean, England and Germany can't both have been right that God wanted them to do what they were doing. And yet both sides were Christian countries with Christian chaplains. So this morning, as we hear the biblical account of the call of Isaiah, I wonder what we can discover about the nature of God and what it is that God is calling us to. The golden rule for avoiding misuse of biblical texts is always to begin by putting them in context. It's been said before, and I'll say it again, that a text without a context is a con. Think about it for a moment. So we need to know that the part of Isaiah that we're reading today, and by the way, this is the beginning of a short series on the book of Isaiah. Uh, In one way or another, the next four weeks are all going to be grappling with this this wonderful um, early text. But the bit that we're reading today comes from a part of the book of Isaiah that was written in the latter part of the 8th century BC. So the historical context at that point is this. For many decades, there had been a period of relative peace for Israel. Uh, Israel had split some centuries earlier into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Uh, If you cast your minds back, David unified it all, Solomon ruled over it wisely, Solomon had two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and they split the kingdom. So for for a long time, Israel had been split into north and south. And by the mid-8th century, it was clear that the Assyrians were on the rise. And by the time of um, this part of Isaiah being written, the southern kingdom, based in Jerusalem, had already become a vassal state of Assyria uh, and the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BCE. So. We're still more than a century before the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom, taking the people of Jerusalem and Judea into exile in Babylon. That's going to come later. And actually the later parts of the book of Isaiah do cover that period. Um, But we need to remember that this early story of the call of um, the historic character Isaiah is taking place in the midst of the political turmoil caused by the threat of the Assyrians. And this text from Isaiah is one of the earliest examples we have of a genre of ancient writing that comes to be known as Jewish apocalyptic literature. We meet this in other Old Testament texts such as Ezekiel and Daniel, and of course in New Testament texts like Mark chapter 13 or the book of Revelation. And the thing to understand about apocalyptic material such as this is that uh, it, it always describes a vision of heaven. You you kind of know you're in apocalyptic territory when somebody has a dream or has a vision and the dream or the vision always unveils a deeper spiritual reality that lies behind the observable reality. It's kind of like you look at the world around you and then you have a dream and you learn to see the world around you differently. So when the ancient Israelites pictured God They commonly imagined him, and I use the word him here deliberately, as a male figure seated on a throne up in heaven, surrounded by seraphim and cherubim holding court over the affairs of the earth. In other words, they imagined that God up on high in heaven looked like a kind of heavenly version of an earthly king surrounded by courtiers and attendants ready to dispense justice and fight for people if needed. And the Israelites of this period also had a firm belief that God was holy, so holy that God's glory could not be seen by sinful human eyes. So we see this in places such as Moses on Mount Sinai, coming down the mountain with a veiled face so the reflected glory of God on his face wouldn't terrify the people. And within the Jewish apocalyptic tradition, there emerged various stories of visions of heaven that people had, where the person receiving the vision uh, kind of... finds themselves going up into the heavens and being shown around by a kind of heavenly tour guide who could mediate between them and God. So you get this, for example, in the Jewish Enoch tradition, uh, which is, um, in, in the apocryphal texts rather than in, in the biblical text but it's part of this early period and there you get this the biblical character Enoch, who is frankly just a bit part character in the early chapters of Genesis, he gets a whole new role, showing people around heaven as a tour guide in their visions, so you get all these visions of people going up into heaven and they bump into Enoch and Enoch says, well would you like to have a look around I could show you, show you the throne room and I could show you where the seraphims sit and, and that kind of stuff, it's all It's kind of like early sci-fi or early fantasy, really. Um, Anyway, the book of Isaiah and the call of Isaiah sits within this tradition of people receiving visions, going up into heaven and being shown around. But with Isaiah, it's slightly different because Isaiah isn't shown around by anybody. He doesn't meet Enoch or, or Metatron or some other heavenly being to show him around. Rather, in Isaiah's vision, he just suddenly finds himself in the heavenly throne room itself, unexpectedly face-to-face with God. And it's immediately clear that God is just as holy as ever, with the creatures around the throne singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Just to make the point that God's holiness is not in any way in doubt by the fact that Isaiah has been admitted into the throne room. So how Isaiah finds himself wondering, can it be that he, a man of unclean lips, as he sees himself, can be looking directly at God? And the first thing Isaiah has to learn is that despite seeing himself as unclean, despite experiencing himself as unclean, God sees him as clean, His personal sense of his unrighteousness does not extend to God's opinion of him. And I wonder how many of us need to hear this message too. How often do we cast judgment on ourselves, ruling ourselves out of God's presence or favour, when in fact God is longing for us, to see ourselves as heaven sees us and to realize that we are in God's eyes entirely worthy of love and acceptance. Do you remember I said that what people see in visions casts a new light on the way they experience the world within the Jewish apocalyptic tradition? Well, I wonder if we need a new vision of ourselves in God's sight. What would it mean for you to know that God absolutely and irrevocably loves you and that there is nothing you have done and nothing you can do that renders you unclean or unacceptable to God? That was Isaiah's big discovery about himself, when in his moment of prayerful meditation, he found himself in God's presence. But Isaiah's call was not simply to be in God's presence. He wasn't called to enter that holy moment and stay there. Rather, it was a call to prophesy, to speak for God. Uh, You know, the word prophesy in contemporary uh, language is often confused with the word predict. You know, we tend to think of the prophecies of Nostradamus because they predict the future or claim to. But actually, a biblical understanding of the word prophesy is less to do with predicting the future and much more to do with proclaiming God's word for now, for the time and place to which the prophet is sent. And for this, Isaiah needs a commissioning service. all all ministers are commissioned, you know, I had had my commissioning service when I was ordained as a minister back in 1999. Well, this is Isaiah's equivalent. And in a liturgical act that echoes the mouth purification rituals of other ancient Mesopotamian religions, Isaiah's mouth is touched by a burning coal, which is picked from the brazier before God's throne on which incense burns. In the book of Revelation, in the New Testament, the incense arising from the heavenly altar is described as being the prayers of the faithful rising before God. And it may well be that something similar is intended here. As Isaiah is commissioned to speak and pray, his actions that he is being commissioned for arise out of the prayers of the faithful. And the people to whom he is called to speak are a nation who are going to have to learn some hard lessons about righteousness. You see, if Isaiah thought he was unclean, but heard God declaring him purified, ancient Israel had it the other way around. They believed that they were righteous, but they needed to hear God's declaration that they were actually living under judgment and were on their way to exile. And the book of Isaiah will then track their journey through judgment and exile to ultimately, a couple of hundred years later, forgiveness and restoration. And along the way, the people of Israel will have to discover that the nature of God is to draw alongside those who suffer. And I find myself wondering, how often do religious institutions in our world believe that they are righteous, when actually they stand under judgment? I'm thinking, for example, of those national churches through the 20th century that supported the oppressive regimes of communism or fascism. That was the wrong thing to do. Don't worry, Numa, it's okay. Or more recently, I wonder, what about the evangelical church in the United States and their evangelical zeal for Trump? Or even closer to home, what about our own religious obsessions in this country with moral superiority and proclaiming judgment on sin? There are Christian websites based in this country that you could go to. I'm not going to tell you what they are because you don't need them in your life, but they will help you to work out who it is that, as a good Christian. You need to be condemning and judging because by doing so, you confirm your own righteousness before God. In this country, there are movements within Christianity that seek to drum up feelings of persecution and victimhood. Christians don't have their place in society that they should have. Christians aren't allowed to do X, Y and Z whilst other religions can. Those narratives are insidious and they get inside us. And what they do is they frame us in a mindset of victimhood. And actually, as Isaiah discovered. Our call is not to judge, it is not to condemn, it is not to make ourselves victims, rather it is simply to proclaim God's loving inclusion and forgiveness. That is what prophecy is about. It is about proclaiming the nature of God to this generation in this context and I think we want to proclaim that God is love and God loves you. Whoever you are, we do not want to proclaim that God judges you and rules you out. Too often, the churches in our nation spend more time proclaiming themselves righteous and others unclean than they do helping people discover the deeper spiritual reality that they too are accepted and loved by God. Liz and I are very, uh, it's just not worked for us this year. We're very disappointed that we're not going to be able to be at Pride London this year. It's clashed with with a holiday that uh, we had scheduled. But in a normal year, Liz and I go down to the Pride parade with others from Christians at Pride. And I know some of you here in this room have been part of this over the years. And uh, we find where the group known as the Angry Christians stand. And they're there with placards of big yellow placards with black writing on condemning the people in the parade as sinful and going to hell. And we stand there just upstream of that group and we just say to the people in the parade. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. It's very powerful. Two different visions of what the people of God are called to be, just enacted in a little moment by the side of a parade in London. As churches, we should be putting others first and ourselves last, always seeking to act in the public good, rather than getting upset about supposed infringements of our perceived rights. And similarly, I might mention the frequent justification churches offer for war and violence, such as just war theory. And I might conclude that whilst one can always make a case for staying the hand of an aggressor, and sometimes it is necessary. There are nonetheless far, far too many examples of Christian collusion with violence. Which brings me back to the examples of biblical exegesis with which we started. Sure, sometimes you have to stay the hand of the aggressor. But is that God's preferred option? Or are there other paths to peace, which if, as a society, we had committed ourselves to them earlier, would have meant we didn't get to the point where it comes to blows? Isaiah's call then is twofold. Firstly, it is a call to enter the presence of God and to discover something about how God sees him. And then secondly, it is a call to speak that truth that is discovered, to proclaim God's word for his time and his place and his people. And I wonder if we too can share Isaiah's calling. Can we discover for ourselves something new this morning about how the God of holiness and love sees us? Can we hear the good news that we are pure and holy and beloved, and that none of us are unacceptable to God? But can we also hear the call to action? Not to take up arms against God's enemies, but to be those who faithfully proclaim and enact God's love. Especially to those who are themselves currently unable to perceive the awesome truth that God is for them. That God loves them, that God has blotted their sins away and released them from their guilt, as God has done for us. Who are we, and what are we going to do about it?
2: Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word this morning, whose meaning we are transposing in the context of our own lives here and now. We thank you for your unconditional love and for the firm assurance that you value every single one of us, despite our weaknesses and failings. May this assurance give us the strength, wisdom and courage to respond to your call. And as Isaiah, may we too be able to answer from the depth of our hearts. Here am I, send me. Dear Lord, send us into the world not to satisfy our own needs, or those of our rulers under false pretenses, not to blindly proclaim our righteous and superior ways to those we deem impure or sinners, because we know that such paths are often made of lies leading to war, to exclusion and suffering. But send us into the world to listen with compassion to share your love and forgiveness and to work for justice and peace. Dear Lord, in a world ridden by wars, poverty and discriminations, we pray for this church and churches in all countries. We recognize that so often they have encouraged their people to fight because of their deep convictions to be right. We pray that church leaders everywhere and we as a church here may listen to your call to love and care for all, be truly open, inclusive and ambassadors of peace. And once again, merciful God, we pray for all people, young and old, who bear the brunt of suffering of wars, whether in Ukraine, Sudan or so many other places in the world. We pray for all the countries or situations where violence occurs daily, such as Israel and Palestine. We pray also for the people of India, bereaved or injured after this tragic train accident. Nearer to us, we pray for all the families afflicted by endless cycles of violence and for all the people known to us who suffer from illness or grief. We commend all of them to your love and consolation. Dear Lord, thank you for this season of summer full of flowers and sunshine. We marvel at your creation. May we take care of it and protect it through our everyday actions and through commitments in our communities, cities and countries to preserve the environment and address the climate crisis. Gracious God, we finally pray for each and everyone in this assembly, blessed by your love but also surrounded by the love we have for one another. We welcome and thank you for Thomas in particular and pray for him. As we leave this service, help us discern your calling in our lives for this week, whether it is at work or in our relationships with others, and let us act on it. Here we are, Lord, guide us, send us. We ask for all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.